This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Claims that immigrants take the jobs of Americans are a drain on the economy, contribute to poverty, and cause a host of social ills by their very existence are discussed and debated at all levels of our society, especially here in Orange County, California, the home of Jim Gilchrist and the Minuteman Project. In her new book, They Take Our Jobs and 20 Other Myths About Immigration, our guest today, Aviva Chomsky, dismantles the most common assumptions from immigrants don't pay their taxes to today's immigrants are not learning English. The daughter of Noam Chomsky, Aviva, is professor of history and coordinator of Latin American studies at Salem State College. Avi Chomsky, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks a lot for having me. It's exciting to be on in Orange County. <laughs> <laughs> well, now watch it. Here. It's nice to, nice to have you with us. Yes, yeah, and, yes and, very much. And uh, yeah, it, it is troubling here in Orange County a lot of the time. Uh, I, I was wondering, first of all, I've got to ask the question, uh, they take our jobs. Do you listen to South Park at all? Did you did you know no, that they? No, uh, It's funny because that's just I. I was just told by Mike here, who apparently uh, watches the show, that that's one of the the rallying cries of the. One of the episodes was was about immigrants, and they they kept repeating that same phrase. So when I saw the book, the title of the book, I thought, well, is did one one feed off of the yeah, other? I wasn't sure how that came to be, but uh, so were they using it critically or oh, it, it, straightforwardly you know, in the it, show? Well, it was kind of uh, they kept using it as these union guys would just sort of repeat this mantra over and over. You couldn't say anything uh, until you said this this phrase at the beginning of your argument, which was "They take our jobs," and then you could say whatever you wanted. And it was it was you know it was I don't know if you've ever watched South Park. It's very silly at times and and this was you know it's a, it was just silly in a lot it's, of ways it's iconic yeah yeah, yeah, that's yeah, all. And yeah. I, was, I was just curious about yeah. that what what uh got you going on writing this book they take our jobs how how is it that you uh came into the subject well even without watching south park i've <laughs> heard the phrase many times yeah. Yeah. yes i i ought to say too my father uses it yeah. um my students use it a lot oh no yeah um well, I've been working on immigrants' rights issues for many years and teaching about immigrants' issues um, in the classroom. And um, I sort of, before I even got the idea to write the book, this this sort of set of myths had developed itself in my head because I go over them and the same ones come up over and over again in every conversation that I have, that I overhear, in what I see people saying in newspaper articles. And specifically... Um, the the book came up after two almost identical conversations that didn't, in fact, have to do with the jobs issue, but had to do with uh, so-called illegal immigration and the uh, statement made by in two very different contexts contexts um, by white Americans that my ancestors came here legally and I don't see why people have to come here illegally today, mm. um, which reveals just a huge ignorance about the history of U.S. immigration law and the current U.S. immigration law. Um, and in both cases, it wasn't appropriate for me to actually challenge the person in the circumstances that they made the statement, mm-hmm. so I just listened to it and smiled, but then I went home and 
start banging out an answer on my computer. Uh (laughs) That's where the book came from. What would you have said to them if you if it had been appropriate at that point in time? You know, where they're saying that you know the 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 original settlers came here legally. Um. Well, I mean, in fact, neither of these was referring to the original settlers. They were referring to um, absolutely, but. Uh, grandparents and great-grandparents who immigrated here in the Uh late 19th, the beginning of the 20th century. Um, But what I wanted to say is, look at yourself. You're white. Our immigration law, ever since there has been an immigration law, um, which there wasn't um, for a good part of this country's history, that is pretty much anyone could come here as long as our law based citizenship on whiteness, which it did for the first hundred years of our history. Um, as long as only white people could be citizens, uh, the rulers, the governors of the country didn't care who came here. In fact, they forced people to come here, people from Africa, for example, mm-hmm. um, with the idea that they would work but not be citizens. It was only when, after the Civil War, when citizenship by birth became enshrined in U.S. law, that is the idea that anybody who's born here, regardless of race, can be a citizen, that's when restrictive, racially restrictive immigration laws started to come into place, and different racial groups started being excluded from immigrating with the very explicit logic that, well, we can't let them in here because then they might have children, and then their children will be citizens, and then we won't be a white country anymore. Mm-hmm. I, so I re- if white people immigrated here legally, it's because the law, there was no law prohibiting them from immigrating. Uh-huh. That is... It's sort of like saying, well, you know, we have a lunch counter and we restrict it to white people and then and say blacks can't sit at this lunch counter. And then you have all these white people sitting at the lunch counter saying, well, I'm sitting here legally. I don't see why black people can't sit here legally. Right. Well, they can't because the law discriminates against them by saying that they can't. I remember a couple of years ago, uh, and the, the echoes of this was when um, Pat Buchanan ran for president. And I want to say it was in 2000. Thousand was when he ran, and he talked about uh, this sort of the idea of they were we were losing so many of the European immigrants. There was this this is a reoccurring theme, and he, I, I'm, my point is is it's even to today it, it keeps coming up on a presidential campaign level in in some manner of speaking. The Republicans now have two of the most virulently anti-immigrant um, congressmen running, uh, Tancredo, and um, I'm trying to think of the other. I'm just losing. Who the other one was, but Tancredo's been uh, particularly bad mm-hmm, on immigration. Mm-hmm. So it, it 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 works with the electorate. I guess that's one of the things about this issue is you can make so many false claims, and I want to get into some of the most damaging claims that are made, and really it really resonates with with this uh, with the the working class who are under a lot of pressure, and isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the the uh, logical slippage comes up between the two parts of the statement that you made. That is, on one hand, the working class really is under a lot of pressure. That's not invented. Um, That's true. Um, But the relationship between that socioeconomic pressure, which is due really to very big structural economic changes in the U.S. economy and in the global economy, um, the relationship between that pressure and immigration is pretty much zero. Mm, Um, But immigration is used as a scapegoat for people who are undergoing real economic suffering um, and who are sort of grasping at straws, perhaps, um, 
And, you know, racism always flourishes yeah. among people who are under pressure and um, grasping at straws and looking for someone to scapegoat. Right. Anytime there's a downturn in the economy, a recession or a depression, we tend, politically speaking, we tend to take it out. Well, why do you say the relationship is almost zero? Can you yeah. throw some numbers at us there? Or uh... Yeah, well, um, I mean, just look at the issue of the, the title of the book, Immigrants Take American Jobs, and then maybe I can also talk a little bit about immigrants' lower wages. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, unemployment is a big issue in the U.S. economy, and it has been historically more and less at different periods in, in U.S. history. Um, and it varies also geographically across the United States from areas of very high unemployment to areas of very low unemployment. If you try to draw a statistical connection between immigration and unemployment statistics, you won't find it either historically or geographically today. It just isn't there. Um, Unemployment, well, unemployment is sort of built into the way capitalism functions, but... um, But uh, the number of people in a particular area, um, the relationship of the number of people in a particular area to the employment level in that particular area is, um, has several aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of local goods and services, basically the more people there are in an area, the more demand there's going to be for goods and services mm-hmm. at the local level. So when the population goes up, whether it's through immigration or through um, you know, people moving from one city to another rather than immigrating across um, national borders or through birth rates going up or down, in general, a declining population means that jobs are going to be lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and a rising population means that more jobs are going to be created. But the local job creation is only one small piece of what creates jobs in a place because most of us work in a very globally integrated economy. So when an automobile factory closes in Detroit and hundreds of people lose their jobs, that has nothing to do with immigration. It has to do with changes in the global economy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if we want to look at patterns, mm-hmm. um, plant closures and globalization have a big effect on employment statistics. Um, Immigration has a much smaller effect, and to the extent that it has an effect, by making the population grow, it creates more jobs in local goods and ser- production of local goods and services. I, I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with Aviva, <coughs> excuse me, Aviva Chomsky, and the book is "They Take Our Jobs and Twenty Other Myths About Immigration." And when they say immigrants don't pay taxes, mm-hmm. now I I have uh, worked in uh, situations where they're, I know that to be a fact, that they're not paying initially, at least not filling out the forms and, and not paying those kind of taxes, uh, but in, in, on their payroll taxes. What do you say to people that say that that somehow is causing a loss of jobs or a loss of uh, uh, economic vitality in this country by saying that immigrants don't pay taxes? Um. Now, there's several pieces to this argument as well. Um, First of all, you're right. When people say immigrants don't pay taxes, they're really only referring to one kind of taxes, that is payroll taxes. Mm -hmm. Um, State and local, state and federal income taxes, um, Social Security, unemployment taxes, those taxes that are deducted from the payroll. Um, Of course, there's many other kinds of taxes that everybody pays 
um, property taxes if you own property or rent. That is, if you live anywhere, you are paying property taxes, um, sales taxes, gasoline taxes. Um, so we're all paying taxes all of the time that are completely irrelevant to our uh, legal or not status mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as payroll taxes, basically anybody who works in the formal economy, that is anyone who receives a payroll check, is going to have those taxes deducted. And that's true whether they're an immigrant, whether they're a citizen, whether they're a so-called illegal immigrant. If they're working in the formal economy, they're paying those taxes, and it's the employer who's deducting those taxes from their paycheck. Now, how does an illegal so-called immigrant work in the formal economy, many do, and they do it by giving a false social security number. And this is another thing that people get so up in arms at the idea that someone would give a false social security number. But in fact, when a person gives a false social security number, this means that the employer deducts all of these payroll taxes from their paycheck. Um, Undocumented immigrants contribute about $7 billion a year into the social security fund, um, because they're paying these taxes and they're not eligible for Social Security mm-hmm. because they don't have documents. Mm-hmm. So basically, by giving a false Social Security number, a person is paying into a system that they'll never get anything back from. So undocumented immigrants are basically subsidizing Social Security if this, if this unfair system that takes taxes from people and doesn't give them the services in return didn't exist, Social Security would be totally bankrupt right now. What in your in your mind? What is the the most the one or two most damaging arguments that are made about uh, immigration, illegal or otherwise? Um, what are what are the what are the two myths that just seem to resonate the most with people? Well, I mean, in some ways, I think that what's most damaging is an idea that underlies almost all of the myths, which is that that some that people don't have and shouldn't have equal rights, that some people are more equal than others, that some people deserve rights that some, and others don't deserve rights, that the law should discriminate, and that immigrants are somehow not people in the same way that citizens are people. That is, our law should distinguish between different groups of people and give some people rights and deny others rights. Now, when you talk about that in U.S. history, of course, U.S., law has always done that. Um, It's done it on the basis of gender. It's done it on the basis of race. Um, Most people say the law shouldn't discriminate, except when you come to the topic of immigration, they say, oh, but it should discriminate against immigrants. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think what people fail to, to think about is that any kind of discrimination in the law, whether you call it because of race or because of gender or because of birthplace or because of national origin or because of ethnicity or because of immigration status, um, once you accept the premise that some people should be discriminated against, then everything else kind of follows from that. Right. But I think that in every historical period, the people who've been doing the discriminating have felt that it's so obviously justified. Like, of course, yeah. people shouldn't be able to be citizens. Right. So, so I think that's the, the central myth that underlies all the other ones yeah. is that... Um, that our law should discriminate. Right. It, 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 it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, sort of perspective in the sense that uh, we have, as, as a culture, as a nation, you're right, we have, over the history of our country, sort of put this idea 
it's affixed to the law essentially that that there are certain classes of citizens or citizens uh, or or um, people in our society that there are it is a class system in a way that we like to think we're not. Mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. we we it's have a that system myth. of legalized discrimination. Um, and yet, by sort of dehumanizing the people you're discriminating against, you justify it. Yeah. Is, is uh, the idea that we're always going to have people coming to this country for economic opportunity? I mean, that's, that's the, that's the uh, one... Maybe. Maybe. As long as we're a vibrant, a somewhat vibrant economy. But does the idea that if we were... Uh, I mean, these trade agreements have certainly impacted how much immigration has come into this country. Mm-hmm. If we were more active and we were in, in promoting a, uh, an, an economy in, in uh, Mexico and Central America and South America, in an economy that was a fair economy, allowed people to make a, a, a good living, a, a sustainable living, how much of an impact do you think that that would have on immigration into this country? I think that it would have a huge impact. That is... What's going to have the least impact on immigration into this country is our immigration laws. That is, making our laws even more draconian, discriminating even more, making it even harder for people to get across the border, um, causing even more death and suffering and human destruction. That's not going to change immigration. It's just going to cause more human suffering. What is going to change immigration, and again, I mean... Immigration is a product of the global economy, and there are historical patterns to immigration that are very, very clear. And one of the ones that we're experiencing right now is that colonization brings immigration. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look around the world at migrant flows, they're basically people from former colonies going to the former metropolis, mm-hmm. people from India and Pakistan going to England, people from the Dominican Republic Cuba and Mexico and Puerto Rico coming to the continental United States, Mm -hmm. people from Algeria going to France. Um, Juan Gonzalez called immigration the harvest of empire. Mm. And in the modern world, that is the cause of immigration. Um, It's the socioeconomic relationships set up by colonialism. Mm -hmm. So if we really want to change immigration patterns, absolutely, we have to change global economic relationships. And, you know, people often ask me if I'm pro-immigration, and I'm not pro-immigration. I'm pro-immigrant because I think that everybody deserves equal human rights and that the law shouldn't discriminate against anybody because of where they were born or, you know, slapping a label on them and saying, okay, now you're someone we can discriminate against. Um, But immigration is really a sign of huge inequalities in the global economy. Um, It's a sign that people can't survive in their homelands. Most people immigrate because they can't survive in their homelands, and they go to a place where they'll be able to feed their children. Um, This is their crime, trying to survive and feed their children. Um, You know, I would just rephrase a little bit something that you said, because Mm -hmm. um, I think where the United States, through economically, politically, militarily, has intervened is always where we see immigrants coming. That is, we have this kind of fiction that we can go into a country and fix it up, and then no one will want to leave because we made it so good. Mm -hmm. That's never happened. It's always exactly the opposite. We go into a country, we mess it up, people can no longer survive there, and they flee. Does that sound familiar at all? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. I mean, look at the massive uh, out-migration from Iraq right now. There's something like 
two, two million two million external and a million internal refugees. Is right. Um, the four same thing's happening in Colombia. Yeah. If you follow the trail yeah. of U.S. military aid and economic investment, you see people displaced, dispossessed, and well, trying to migrate. Um, well, Vietnam is another example. Yeah, Vietnam, absolutely. Um, even economic investment without military intervention brings huge disruptions to traditional economies um, and leads to migration. If you look at um, Puerto Rico, for example, um, basically everywhere that the United States has gone, the attempt to move people from subsistence production into an export economy tears peasants from the land, disrupts traditional village life and um, subsistence agriculture, and sets people loose in an economy where the only thing they can do is work for substandard wages and barely survive or not survive. Um, The region that I work in in Colombia right now is a perfect example of sort of the very first step of this process where huge multinational mining companies have gone in and opened these giant open-pit coal mines. So if you look at this sort of in macroeconomic terms, it seems like the economy is improving because these foreign investors go in and open up these huge mines. But if you look at what's actually happening on the ground, indigenous and Afro-Colombian people who have survived by farming, hunting, and fishing on this land for hundreds or even thousands of years are losing their livelihoods. They're being forced off of their farms, out of their villages, into urban slums, um, And from there, in another generation or two, they're going to be migrating out of the country. So economic investment often disrupts traditional economies and leads to migration. Um, We have to talk about even more profound changes in the global economy if we want to talk about helping people survive where they are. And I should say that the people who are being displaced from their lands, they don't want to leave their lands. They want to be able to survive the way their ancestors have survived. So what we're doing with our policies is destroying people's lives, and then when they look for alternative means of survival by coming here, we say, no. We're speaking with Aviva Chomsky. The book is They Take Our Jobs and 20 Other Myths About Immigration. There's there's a 21st myth that you have listed here, too, and, Mm -hmm. and that is the problems this book raises are so large that there's nothing we can do about them. So, so what can we do about this? Well, I think that the problems I was just describing in the global economy that are leading to immigration are really very closely intertwined with the problems in the domestic economy, which are leading to unemployment, that is, plant closures. And you know, even this mine that I was just talking about, mm-hmm. it's owned by a U.S. company that has closed its mines in the United States and caused huge unemployment in the Alabama region where it used to operate mines. Um, while it's now displacing people in Colombia. So much of this, I think, is a result of, I mean, clearly there's been global economic inequalities that we can trace back at least 500 years, probably more than 500 years. But many aspects of this have gotten much worse Mm -hmm. in the post-World War II period. Um, And I think if we look if we look at what we call Reaganomics, oh, no. um, and, and, you know, it's like he is the source of so many of the <laughs> things that we talk about. The Reagan administration, it, the ripple effect of the Reagan administration is something that we will feel for decades. 
For centuries. For centuries, <laughs> maybe. Honestly, I'm sorry to mean to interrupt you, but uh, it's it's Reaganomics. Uh, we just we, it seems that he seems that administration seems to be a touchstone for so many things that have gone off the tracks yeah. in our country. Well, I mean, I think it really set the. Um, I mean, it didn't begin the process. No, it solidified the, before. But it solidified. It really kind of yeah. Set in stone yeah. some of the undermining of the social welfare state in yeah. the United States. Yeah. Some of the imposition of um, extremely poor working conditions abroad um, and and the encouragement of U.S. factories and investors moving abroad um, and the sort of downward spiral of the race to the bottom, which we associate with modern globalization. Right, right. So can this be turned back? Um, certainly it can. Um, and I think we just need to look at everything that's been done wrong in the last 30 years and think about how can we start to undo it. Um, can we take down the fence that we're building at the border instead of building it up? Of course we could. Could we start restoring um, federal um, governmental social service programs, whether it's in state and local aid, whether it's in welfare systems, whether it's in social security? Um, should we continue to move towards cutbacks in social services, the destruction of the social safety net in this country, um, or should we turn the tide on that and start moving back towards the kind of social welfare state that was created by the New Deal? Mm-hmm. Um, well. and, and, and finally, I think we also need to recognize that the more our laws discriminate against immigrants, the more our laws create an underclass which can then be used to lower working conditions for everybody, just as creating poor working conditions for workers abroad helps factories move abroad to take advantage of those conditions. Right. So improving working conditions abroad would um, ameliorate that. Yeah. Creating an underclass in the United States who are deprived of rights is going to encourage employers to um, take advantage right. of right. that sort of subclass underclass that's being created. The more we can extend rights to the people who are the victims of the global economy, the more the tide is going to rise instead of continuing to sink for everybody. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time. Uh, so we're... Uh, my, um, I'm sorry. So I want to... <laughs> I'm sorry. He's, he's bumping I his head. I'm bumping. I, I'm, I'm just crashing into things now. But I, I want to thank you very much for being here. Aviva... Chomsky, the book is They Take Our Jobs and 20 Other Myths About Immigration. Thanks for having me. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar, and this is Weekly Signals.